Hello, and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Caroline Rose. Caroline is a senior analyst and head of the Power Vacuums program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute. Together with Alexander Stoddholm, an independent consultant and analyst of the global illicit drug trade, Caroline has co-authored a seminal study on the drug of choice in the Middle East, Captagon. It's titled, The Captagon Threat, A Profile of Illicit Trade, Consumption, and Regional Realities, and you can find it on the New Lines Institute website. Our conversation today looks at the rise of a narco-state in Levant. Caroline, great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me back on. It's great to be here. Now, my first question, Caroline, what is Captagon and why has it become the drug of choice in the Levant, the Gulf, and, and the wider Middle East? It's a great question. So Captagon is a, uh, a, a, a stimulant drug that first emerged in the 1960s on licit pharmaceutical markets. Uh, it was produced by a German uh, pharmaceutical company called Degusa AG, and it enjoyed a period of time on the licit pharmaceutical market where it was prescribed by doctors, by psychiatrists, for a series of disorders, uh, for example, attention deficit disorder, sometimes for weight loss. It was essentially a, 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 a substance that would promote productivity. And uh, after a, a few years, in the mid-1980s, it was scheduled from the by the World Health Organization uh, just due to some of its long-term health concerns. It had um, some very negative effects on, on long-term cardiovascular health uh, and other major organs. And so uh, in the mid-1980s, it was scheduled and it migrated to the Balkan region uh, where it had, um, where, where illicit production was quite popular and illicit trafficking. And then after a series of law enforcement crackdowns, it migrated further to the Levant region in Syria and Lebanon, where it, 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 of course, its formula evolved a bit more and it identified more destination markets in the Middle East. Uh, and since the early 2000s, we've seen Captagon very much anchored in Syria and also the Syrian-Lebanese border region. Um, that's been its primary production hub. What does it do as a drug? Does it does it make you feel good? Does it speed things up? What is it? What is it about Captagon that that is attractive to a user? It, its formula has changed since the 1960s, so some of its effects have also changed with it. Um, it's no. Its original formula was phenethylene. Now we see at a, a formula that has a bit more of an amphetamine base, up to sometimes 46 percent of amphetamine in a pill, and. Also, a number of other additives like caffeine, quinine, uh, and a number of other chemical products that are, that are put into the pill. And what this does is this makes a user feel incredibly euphoric, productive, it staves hunger, it, uh, it, it allows you to stay up at all hours of the night. Um, sometimes it produces sexual feelings of desire. Sometimes it can make uh, a user feel uh, a, a bit more violent. So it produces a ranges of a range of different uh, effects that will, of course, affect the user's behavior, and of course, these last for just a few hours. I've heard it called the the poor man's uh, cocaine. Is is that a fair description of it? I wouldn't necessarily compare it to cocaine, um, def- because it's an amphetamine based pill. I think that it shares more properties with, of course, amphetamine and methamphetamine. But certainly, I think that when they when they call it the poor man's cocaine, I think 
that it definitely refers to the pill's popularity and the, the cheap the cheap nature of, of a lot of these pills in the in the Middle East. Um, some Captagon pills are selling for less than a dollar, depending on where you are in the in the region. Now you mentioned how it it moved to the Levant after there were crackdowns. Uh, first of all, in 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 uh, America, then in the Balkans, um, and here we are, Syria, and and I'm thinking, you know, a narco state. And when we think of narco states, people think of Colombia, the drug cartels, Escobar, you know, the whole Netflix narco series. But what your report lays bare is the narco state that Syria has become. How has that happened, Caroline? The report, it identifies the Captagon trade as a trade that has been elevated and perpetuated by both state and non-state actors. Uh, so of course, when we use the term narco state in Syria, I think it's accurate, but at the same time, I think that it's still very important to remember that there are a number of other actors also involved, implicated in the trade. But um, state-aligned individuals, uh, they, they by far are, are, the, are behind the majority of Captagon production. And certainly the millions of pills that we're seeing flow into um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, most of these actors are behind the level of industrial-sized production that we see in the Captagon trade. And we found evidence that, of course, uh, the 4th Division, a uh, part of the Syrian army and the Syrian state, it's headed by Bashar al-Assad's brother, Maher al-Assad. Um, he's been linked to overseeing a Captagon factory in Albasa, Latakia, and, and manufacturing, manufacturing centers along the Syria-Lebanon border in the Kalmoon mountain range. And we also, of course, identify other members that are very either related to the Assad regime. For example, uh, Wasim Badia al-Assad, uh, Rami Maklouf but then also a number of individuals that are part of the patronage network and are involved in the country's agricultural, transportation, and commercial sectors that provide the necessary packaging materials, production tools, um, and transportation mechanisms that have allowed the Captagon trade to be um, transported throughout the region and produced at quite unbelievable levels. Now, you mentioned that the pills can sell for as a little as $1 a pill, but give me an idea of how big the industry is, how lucrative it is. You mentioned sales in the, in the Gulf, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, these are well-heeled states. Uh, presumably, they're prepared to pay a little more than a dollar a pill. Absolutely. So in the market, there is a, a very large range of how much a Captagon pill can sell for, uh, depending on which market, closer to production sites. And if the pill is considered of less quality, um, typically those types of pills are more mealy and they're, they have a bit more of a yellowish brownish tint to them. They sell for less than a dollar, um, particularly in Syria, particularly around um, production sites. However, the further you get, and with higher quality pills, um, which tend to be of a, a, a more white tone, for example, in Persian Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, pills tend to sell between $15 per pill and $25 per pill. And uh, I think that's quite notable. And in the report, what we did is we calculated 
the estimated market value for the Captagon trade. And we tracked all of the seizures that were recorded and reported by uh, governments and law enforcement systems. And using a, um, a weighted average of these prices, we calculated an estimated value of the Captagon trade and found it to be $5.7 billion. Now, I want to caveat that and, and say that this is only the pills that have been seized and have been recorded. There is likely, a, 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 this likely is the only, is the tip of the iceberg. And there's likely um, a larger value uh, that's out there. But unfortunately, we're, we're not able to record because we just don't know how much more Captagon pills have filtered into these illicit markets. Um, so 5.7 billion at least is, is the value for Captagon in 2021. And we also noted that this was a huge leap from the estimated 2020 um, market value, which was estimated by the Center for Operational Analysis Studies core uh, to be 3.46 billion in 2020. So quite a big jump. And as you say, that's probably the bottom end of the, of, of the scale. How has Captagon moved? So Captagon, it's, it, it's very interesting. It seems like every day smugglers invent a new way to transport Captagon. In the early 2000s, we mostly saw this on a very small scale and through overland routes. People with backpacks, uh, you know, people crossing over the border with trucks, um, sometimes personal vehicles, and then occasionally by air. So, for example, we would see, you know, a seizure at the Rafiq Hariri Airport, or at one point there was an airport um, in Paris that also seized a, a very small Captagon shipment. But recently, we've started to see, in the last, I'd say, three years, uh, Captagon smugglers have used licit commercial maritime routes in addition to overland routes to smuggle Captagon. And they've used uh, maritime vessels, sometimes tankers, to uh, load industrial-sized uh, amounts of, of Captagon, hide them among licit substances like organic soap, um, fruit, uh, inside of industrial packaging, and transport them either directly to destination markets in the Persian Gulf or to transshipment sites in southern Mediterranean European ports, for example, the port of Salerno, the port of Piraeus, the port of Constanta, and uh, use that as a way to uh, reduce the suspicion um, from with these shipments from coming from, for example, Lebanese or Syrian ports. Uh, so that's been a very sophisticated and advanced tactic that we've seen among smugglers. And with the overland routes, we're still seeing Captagon being smuggled through overland routes. In fact, I think in the last half year, this has been a very popular method for, for Captagon smugglers. And they've used everything. They've used uh, Captagon being hidden inside of the intestines of livestock. They've used, uh, recently there was a seizure where there were um, glass plates and they know they really just hid Captagon tablets inside of the plates, like custom made these plates to to hide Captagon inside of them, inside of pomegranates. Uh, we I feel like we've really seen everything under the sun, um, which really goes to show that Captagon smugglers are they're incredibly smart and sophisticated, and they'll adapt to any kind of restriction or constraint. Now I want to go back, Caroline, to the Assad family. You you you've touched on some of the some of the players there, but. But again, how was it that the Assads 
entourage was able to move so easily into the Capdagon trade? We don't know for sure exactly what moment, um, you know, the Capdagon trade became such a heavy revenue source for the uh, members of the Assad regime. Uh, I think it was certainly over time. So Captagon, of course, was a very popular substance, you know, in the Middle East since the early 2000s. There was a lot of technical expertise and scientific knowledge about Captagon. It was very cheap to make uh, and, of course, very popular in the Persian Gulf. There was there was a an established destination market and consumption market in the Gulf. And so I think that uh, the of course, the Civil War, the the conditions that were very conducive to not only drug production and trafficking, but also consumption. I think that really drove members of the regime to, to identify Captagon as an alternative revenue source. And I think that the economic collapse exacerbated by sanctions, along, of course, with the fact that Captagon has been able to grow, has really allowed these actors to rely on Captagon production as a, a, a huge source of income. Unfortunately, we're not exactly sure how much, um, I don't think that there's a, a sure way to know just because out of that 5.7 billion that we estimated, these producers are likely receiving a large cut of that. But it, it, there's so many middlemen and so many other um, actors involved that it's difficult to identify exactly how much they're reaping from this. Um, however, of course, I think that it was an easy trade to commandeer. You know, these members of the security sector, they already controlled the checkpoints. There is already this patronage, patronage uh, system already set up. All this really is, is, you know, taxing some of these shipments uh, through these land and uh, maritime ports, uh, just reaping more of the benefits of this trade and just increasing production very cheaply. And so I think that for many of these members, you know, both inside Syria and outside of Syria, there's, of course, a lot of a lot of um, warlords and uh, members of Hezbollah that also participate in production near the Kalmoon mountain range. I think that for them, this has just been a very easy way to reap profits and to help sustain their own operations. Yeah. In your report, you've got a, a map that uh, shows where both large scale and small scale Captagon factories are located. And Many of them are on the border with Lebanon, and that brings us to another big player, which you've already mentioned in the Capitacan trade, Hezbollah. Now, we've seen it time and again where revolutionary movements devolve into drug and weapons traffickers. But for Hezbollah, this has been going on for a very long time, hasn't it? I mean, it started with marijuana and hash, so, but it's moved on rather. So, so take us through that Hezbollah connection. The Hezbollah connection is quite fascinating because... Hezbollah, as, as I think all of us know, um, has had a very extensive history with drug production and, and drug smuggling with the cannabis trade um, in the Bacaw Valley. And so I think that Hezbollah has been a very key ally and partner with the Assad regime and particularly with the 4th Division, which they have very close ties with, uh, because they have that technical expertise the knowledge and the experience with smuggling drugs uh, throughout the region, and of course also uh, particularly to to Europe. And so I think that they've been a very close ally of of the 4th Division and and the regime overall in allowing for the the Captagon trade to really boom uh, like it has over the past two and three years. And I, I think that when characterizing Hezbollah's role, they certainly, there is evidence of Captagon production. There are small scale labs. A lot of them are mobile um, along the Lebanese-Syrian border. 
there's an estimate of, of over about 20 of these, these labs. A lot of them are in hollowed out residences or villas, um, small buildings where they have kind of these small scale captagon production sites. The Lebanese internal security forces have conducted a few raids recently, and we've, we've been able to kind of get a peek in, into these captagon labs, and they're not very large. Um, so while certainly they're involved in production, I would say that I think they're more of a supporter with smuggling and trafficking efforts, um, particularly with large scale captagon shipments. Uh, they've been key in giving access to these smugglers to key ports, for example, the port of Beirut or the port of Tripoli, as well as land borders um, that, of course, can access other nodes and production or sorry, and destination markets in the Middle East. And uh, I think that that's the supporting role that they've really played here, along, of course, with some small scale production in the along the border region. But a lot of those production sites are um, we found evidence that they uh, when there's the threat of interdiction, when law enforcement crackdowns seem imminent, they typically go over the border into Syria for a time, for a temporary amount of time and produce there. Um, so really, I think this is kind of an extension and spillover from Syrian production. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, they can just nip across the border to avoid any any police uh, intersections. You talked a little bit about the uh, the cheap ones that are closest to the sites of the productions, and and in your report, you also talked about the the deprivation within Syria that is actually encouraging the Capticon use the the purchase of these very you know the cheap the cheap dirty pills, if I can put it that way. It's actually, it's, it's, it's a very sad uh, situation because, and I think it also points to how Captagon, um, how scary Captagon is in, in many ways, just because the pill can be used for so many different things. And, uh, you know, in the Persian Gulf, where you have a, a number of wealthy, youthful users and, and consumers, uh, they want to use it for recreational purposes, to stave boredom. Um, you know, for university students there, a bit for productivity. But in Syria, and also I'll I'll add Lebanon to this list as well, you have a whole other host of conditions that I think have propelled users to consume Captagon, driven by food insecurity, the economic situation, that's absolutely horrific, Um, trauma from just over, you know, a a decade of, of civil war, and a number of other really sad realities that have made Captagon a, a refuge and, and, and something to take to get through the day, either psychologically or whether that's, you know, working another shift at work or whether trying not to have another meal before the next day. Captagon facilitates and, and helps with all of that. And so, yes, I think that really a, a big factor that has allowed the Captagon trade to thrive has been these conditions and has been the perpetuation of the Syrian civil war and kind of exploiting the trauma of a lot of these uh, consumers. Uh, we also, of course, in the report, identify Captagon through some of our, our ground sources and, and some of the literature that's out there. Uh, Captagon has also been reportedly used as a recruitment tool among the Fort Division and other Iran-aligned militias that are operating in the region. You know, they'll offer Captagon at a cheaper price to potential recruits and um, also, of course, you know, use Captagon as a way to keep people in, in the ranks and, and keep people with, within these organizations to keep fighting. Um, so that's also been very a very interesting element as well to Captagon consumption inside of Syria. 
Yeah, interesting and, and quite disturbing. I mean, is it a drug that's addictive? Uh, can, can people sort of stop taking it and 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 uh, not have very serious uh, addiction results, or is it something that you know you, you really get hooked on? It's absolutely an addictive substance. Um, primarily, of course, with the fact, and it, it really does depend on which tablet, right? Because the the formula does vary. But Captagon, especially Captagon pills with high level of amphetamine concentrations, I, I think really does risk, it has a higher risk of dependency and addiction. And the really sad element of this is that, you know, this is serious specifically, you know, they do not have a lot of rehabilitation uh, facilities and centers that can help drug addicts um, and, and drug users. And then in addition to that, of course, kind of at a... Uh, regional standpoint, there's the taboo of drug use as well that I think has prevented a lot of users from seeking help. Um, but also Captagon has been affiliated uh, and, and some of its cutting agents as well with other long-term and acute health issues. Uh, for example, cardiovascular issues, um, neurological issues, uh, and then other you know sorts of damage to your, your internal organs. And I think that that's been a very concerning element of this trade as well. You know, what's going through my mind as we're talking, Caroline, is, is that image that you've just des- described of really desperate people uh, in, in a terrible situation. I'm contrasting that with these wealthy young golfies, you know, who are uh, dropping a captagon and going to, you know, one of MBS's uh, raves. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a contrast, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, there are people who are taking captagon to get by and then there are people who are taking Captagon to pass the time. And it's such a different picture. Um, and, and the demographics are certainly, they widely vary. Uh, but I think that kind of goes to show just the the pull of, of Captagon. Um, some drugs, you know, for example, have been associated with certain age groups or demographics or communities, whereas this, I think, has much more of a diverse appeal. And for that very reason, I think that that's, that's why this has been very concerning. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea of how big the trade is in the, in the Gulf states, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia? This has been probably the most um, frustrating element of, of researching the Captagon trade. We were able to identify some really amazing um, small-scale medical analyses and, and laboratory analyses from certain Gulf regions, um, particularly the Jazan region in, inside of Saudi Arabia, there was a, a, a medical study that was done surveying Captagon consumers. But the research is just not comprehensively there, whether out of lack of interest or lack of resources or because of that taboo with drug use and consumption. There's just not a lot of data that exists measuring the level of Captagon consumption and dependency in the Persian Gulf. You hear a lot, of course, from sources on the ground and, and people in the region that say, oh, this is a really big problem. And certainly because of the level of seizures that we're seeing pop up in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait every day, it's very evident that this is the primary consumption hub. Uh, but unfortunately, we just we don't have enough data to measure just how bad Captagon consumption and dependency is. Um, and that goes for it's not just the Persian Gulf, but also, I'd say, across the region as well. There's been no comprehensive study into consumption for Captagon. Mm, that's interesting. And I haven't seen any sort of major governmental uh, campaigns warning people against the use of Captagon. 
in the Gulf. Yeah, there has been、um, in Saudi Arabia. There have been some like televised awareness campaigns, but nothing very immense. And and I think also, of course, shrouded with a lot of、um, uh, you know, there's it's been very like local. And I I don't necessarily think that there's been a very national campaign to. Uh, really caution against the effects of Captagon, and then also, of course, increase their own、um, healthcare sector capacity and rehabilitation capacity as well. I haven't seen that.、Mm. Look, I want to take you back to Syria,、um, and I ask you about the some of the non-state actors such as、uh, HDS, Harat, Tahrir Al Sham, and the rebel-held enclave of Idlib, and of course ISIS. Yes, yes. This is definitely a, a very interesting element of the Captagon trade. Unfortunately, it wasn't something. It wasn't an, an area that we were able to really extensively explore and and identify the connection of production and its nexus with HTS and other rebel groups.、Uh, but certainly, we were able to identify that at one point HTS did play a role, not necessarily in production, but in smuggling small scale Captagon shipments. Particularly to Turkey、um, and then elsewhere in in, in Syria,、uh, but lately, and we believe either at the direct、um, instruction of Turkey or you know through their own political reasoning, they have conducted more seizures of Captagon shipments, and I think that they have tried to kind of change this strategy and conduct more interdictions. Uh, regarding ISIS, funny enough, this is how we. This is how my co-author Alex and I were even、uh, involved in, in the Captagon trade and researching the Captagon trade to begin with. We wanted to first explore the connection between ISIS and Captagon, as it was a very popular, I, I'd say, kind of belief in in the in the mid 2010s that Captagon was a drug that was almost exclusively associated with Daesh. And、uh, we we found pretty early on that、uh, the trade was much more large scale. While certainly Captagon was a popularly consumed and on a very small scale produced drug among ISIS fighters,、uh, that just did not tell the whole story. And、um, I think at this point as well, you know, ISIS production of Captagon is very 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 minuscule compared to. The level of production that we are seeing among the Syrian regime and its members, as well as, of course, Hezbollah and other、um, militias, some of them are aligned with Iran in the region.、Mm. If we go back to Escobar and the so-called war on drugs, I mean, rather like the war on terror, it didn't really work. It simply spawned new cartels. So, what solutions do you and and your co-author Alexander Sodahom propose to take down the narco state of Syria? That's a great question. I think that what we wanted to do when we wrote this report and when we were laying out the policy prescriptions, we want to acknowledge that there's no way to entirely eradicate the Captagon trade. You know, even in the even in the '90s in the Balkans, a series of law enforcement crackdowns on some of these、uh, criminal organizations and production, it only moved the trade to a different region. And so we we don't see that as a, as a productive way to, of course,、uh, you know, crack down on the Captagon trade and, and entirely disrupt it. Instead, we think that any in any equation to、uh, to to defeat or to help disrupt and stem the Captagon trade. 
it's going to have to deal with demand. And we have to look at the human security element, the healthcare aspects of, of Captagon and, and the consumption side of the coin. It can't just be about law enforcement interdiction efforts. And I think that there has been some focus on that in, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and even in Jordan. But we also really need to focus on awareness campaigns, a- increasing access to harm reduction facilities and rehabilitation facilities, also mental health care that can help uh, civilians cope with trauma in different ways other than drug consumption. And then also, of course, raising awareness about some of the chemicals inside of Captagon itself. And really, you know, this is this is probably one of the most concerning elements of the trade is that we don't always know what's in these tablets. And depending on where it's produced, who is producing it, it can always be a different formula. And, you know, some tablets have been seen with uh, copper and zinc inside. Some have had even, uh, you know, a, a number of other very harmful additives and cutting agents inside of them. And I think that that's, that should be something that should be um, communicated. I think that, you know, that's, that's definitely a way to help manage the Captagon trade, reduce uh, demand, and then also, of course, uh, as, as a result, reduce the potency and the influence that the Captagon trade has on human security in the region. It's tough, though, isn't it? Because if you've got uh, a government in place, the outside government, which is a drug dealer, drug manufacturer, drug exporter, right there in a, in a situation where it's still, you know, a war situation. I mean, it's very hard to see how anything can be done to clamp down in any significant way on what the Assad regime is doing with Captagon. It's likely the, the most difficult element of all of this is that while, of course, you can reduce demand in, in countries outside of Syria, um, inside of Syria is always going to be difficult to manage and, and to try and influence. But that being said, uh, you know, in the report, we do identify some members that have not been sanctioned by the United States. And, you know, there there is room for additional sanctions. Um, you know, again, the report isn't necessarily calling for this, but you know, that it has been one policy option that has been contemplated by um, some policymakers in Washington. And then in addition to that, of course, you know, there, there, there could be additional uh, ways to promote accountability with the Assad regime. I think just by even stating this connection, having very public and visible investigations in, in, into the Assad regime's finances, uh, into their revenue sources, how Captagon, of course, plays into this. I think that that's a very big move um, in promoting accountability with the Assad regime in this connection. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. Shine a light on it. It's something that uh, Europe can be doing, the UK can be doing. And, uh, you know, that's what your report is done. Are you continuing the uh, the research? Absolutely. So this is going to, uh, I think, establish a, a Middle Eastern illicit economies project at the New Lines Institute that the Power Vacuums program will house. And we'll be doing a lot more work on Captagon. Uh, right now, we're doing a bit of work on Captagon in Iraq and the recent uptick in, in smuggling and addiction that we've seen in the country. And, uh, of course, exploring ways that the United States can help and be a partner in, in all of this. Well, the, uh, the story goes on, Caroline, so you be sure to keep us in the loop. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the New Alliance Institute's Caroline Rose. Caroline is co-author with Alexander Soderholm of a seminal study titled The Captagon Threat, 
a profile of illicit trade, consumption, and regional realities. Well worth a read, and you can find it on the New Lines Institute website. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast, and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 5,000 listeners a month. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of main analysts, analysts like Caroline. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees, and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.